0: It's a cold day in January 2006, and millions of little people are inching closer to their TVs to catch some of the warmth from the sparks they're emitting as Oprah eviscerates debut memorist James Fry into you know exactly how many little pieces. He's sweating often in monosyllabic, looking at his shoes like a child in the principal's office and offering up meek apologies for the trick he's played on us readers. And oh, how we relish the front of watching someone's collapse on national television. Before this kind of thing happened regularly in real time on social media, this was the best we could do. And it was one of the most public public shamings of a writer in history. We'd all read the book, and though some of us won't admit it now, we'd all enjoyed it, for no other reason than because we said to ourselves, Jesus fucking Christ, how could a human being endure all of this? This book is absolutely unbelievable. But because it said memoir on the top left corner of that teal paperback, we believed. 35 years and five days earlier, Jersey Kaczynski is making what will be his first of nine appearances on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. In stark contrast to the slumped, shirking fry, the elfin Mr. Kaczynski sits erect poised as if to strike some unsuspecting prey. He's been described as exotically handsome, but there's something more than exotic about Mr. Kaczynski. There's a touch of absolute otherness in him, as if he's visiting us not from another country, but from another planet. And then the devious smirk gives way to humor and wit and the self-satisfied laugh of a prankster who's pulled one over on his audience. Jersey's personality is exactly like his writing. Weird. Really weird. Creepy as fuck at times. But also somehow relatable and endearing. Tonight, he's talking to Johnny about his third novel, Being There. But the novel that got him to The Tonight Show, the one that built his reputation and helped him garner A-list celebrity status, was his first, The Painted Bird. A so-called autobiographical novel about a child who spends six years separated from his parents during World War II, alone, roaming the Polish countryside, witnessing and experiencing some of the most sadistic human behavior imaginable. When Kaczynski first approached his publishers at Houghton Mifflin, he pitched it as an entirely true story. But as the publication date drew near, he changed his mind and shrewdly fought to call the book a novel. Why? Well because Jersey was never separated from his parents during the war, and the stories that made up The Painted Bird simply weren't true. Fry's book about a crack addict, alcoholic, and rehab wasn't true either, but he'd first tried to shop it around as a novel. No one wanted it. But if you're willing to call it a memoir, Nan Talese from Doubleday told him, we'd be happy to publish it. In the sense that both books are extravagant exaggerations of the two men's lived stories, or, less generously, outright fabulations they tried to pass off as truth, they're quite similar. Fry gets a root canal without Novocaine, Jersey gets buried alive. Fry gets molested by a priest who he then nearly beats to death, Jersey gets molested by a peasant who is then herself gang-raped and beaten to death. These boys suffer, 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 and live to tell the tale. Luckily for Jersey, memoir didn't exist as a literary genre in the U.S. in the 1960s. Because if it did, he'd have been pressured to publish it as one, and it'd be him getting excoriated by Oprah, not Fry. Well, Oprah was 11 years old in 1965, but you get my point. The questions persist. How much resemblance does The Painted Bird actually have to Jersey's childhood? And in terms of how we regard the book today, how much does it actually matter? Finally, how much better is The Painted Bird than A Million Little Pieces? Okay, that one I'll answer right now. It is, insert whatever hackneyed line you want about a million of something times better, that much better. Like a million slices of birthday cake, or hits of crack times better than Fry's shitty book. In any case, it's not my birthday, and I don't even have one little crack rock, but I'm Corey Eastwood, a failing writer, bookseller, and aspiring memoirist who'd happily call my book a novel if that's what it took. And I'm Santiago Alamoan, failing writer, bookseller,
1: and aspiring novelist. Who wouldn't call my fiction a memoir, because that definitely would not help it get published. Anyhow, you're listening to episode 5 of season 1 of Penknife, a podcast about writers who may or may not have written about crime, but who definitely committed it. In this episode, Corey's is going to tell you all about The Painted Bird, a controversial, fucked up little novel he's been talking my ear off about for the past year. I admit that when Corey goes on and on about a book, I often tune him out, but not with a painted bird. Trust me, this one's worth a
2: listen. New York City, 1961. A cafe society gathering in a townhouse in the East 70s, just off Madison Avenue. You've got your Don Drapers and Holly Golightlys your colourful sports coats with contrasting trousers, and your collarless dresses with tight bodices and lampshade skirts. The women's jewellery sparkles like the champagne the butler scurries around refilling, the men's faces flushed with drink, crimson like the blood-like liquid supporting orange slices and ice cubes in the centrepiece crystal punch bowl. Beside it, there's your requisite deviled eggs with just a whiff of paprika, your shrimp cocktail with plenty of ketchup, a savoury jello mould and, yeah, why not, some expensive pigs in a blanket. You've got your Prestons and your Margots moving the conversation seamlessly from yachting and polo to Wall Street and Broadway. They're casually banding about names of familiars like Janet, Phil and Bobby. And if you've made the guest list, you can fill in the surnames. Lee, Roth and Kennedy. It's already turning out to be a splendid evening, when a swell of yelps and laughter is heard from the garden and everyone rushes there to see what's going on. They're just in time to see a flaming Campbell soup can attached to a lanyard circling through the late dust sky. The sight is as preposterous as it is beautiful, and of course, the man responsible is that odd-looking swarthy young fellow of questionable heritage, who's now explaining how a can just like this one, a can he calls a comet, had been his stove and heat source During the several winters he spent alone, sleeping outside in the sub-zero Polish countryside, he retrieves the comet from the lawn and like a hypnotist, gently swinging a pocket watch, waves it in front of his audience as he continues to regale them with the tales of the six years he spent as a homeless child during the war. He explains his fear of dogs and justifies his propensity to abuse them by claiming he spent months hung by his wrists every afternoon above a snarling, ravenous mongrel. He tells of being forced to sweep up a man's eyeballs after another man had just gouged them out with a spoon. And of the time, he was nearly finished skinning what he thought was a dead rabbit that had just been sexually violated by a human being when the now skinless rabbit sprung to life and began running around the yard. The tales keep coming, and people can't get enough of this strange foreigner and his unbelievable life.
0: Perhaps, by the time Jersey Kaczynski put these tall tales to paper in what would become the Painted Bird, he'd told them so many times that he actually believed them himself and several of the stories might not have been such a stretch for him to believe, as they were somewhat rooted in reality. There's the pivotal scene in the novel where he drops the missile at holiday mass, enraging the villagers and causing them to throw him into an outhouse shit pit, traumatizing him so deeply that he doesn't speak for years. In real life, he also dropped the missile, but picked it up right away, wasn't disciplined, and never lost his speech. In another example... The character Evka, the girl who is molested by both her brother and father, and then forced to fornicate with a goat, is based on a girl whose name was Evka, and who tried to out the young Jersey for being a Jew. The list of known origins of the book's stories goes on, but there's nothing unique about that. Extrapolating from life experience is how most fiction is made. The problem arose only when he claimed these clearly fictional stories to be true. It's one thing to write a book about a kid who's beaten, molested, thrown into a pool of feces and buried alive, and another thing entirely to claim that it all actually happened to you. But it's worth mentioning that not all of Jersey's tales were bogus. The one captured in the novel's title, for example, and used brilliantly as a metaphor for a violent society, was more or less real. In Dobrova Jezesky there was a village idiot type man who collected birds of different species, and would occasionally paint one in bright multicolor. Legend, dating back to medieval times, states that the painted bird would return to his flock, but his new beauty would cause him to be unrecognizable to the others. Viewing the unnaturally colored bird as an outsider, they would fear him and attack, often pecking him to death mid-air. And if you don't believe in painted birds, you should really come visit us here in El Cabañal, Valencia. The first time I saw one, I thought I'd just been spending far too much time with Kaczynski, and therefore was imagining it. But it turns out that bird painting is pretty common practice for some of our neighbors here. The main one I see around is a pigeon, an enormous male the size of a fucking goose. He's drenched in hot pink paint, but despite that not-so-flattering color, nobody is fucking with that guy. He's twice the size of all the other unpainted birds, and I like to think that perhaps the Barrio's bird painters have matured into animal rights activists, who limit their artistry only to the pigeons that can clearly defend themselves against all assailants. Or perhaps it's the other way around. And the reason El Cabanyal's skyline is filled with painted pigeons is that the birds have matured and are less prejudiced than they were in Kaczynski's days, now, maybe, they're less likely to judge each other by the color of their feathers. There are so many fascinating things about The Painted Bird, and one of my favorites is that the massive controversy over its veracity might not even be its biggest controversy. There's an equally damning one about the way the novel was written. Despite publishing 11 books and dozens of articles in English during his lifetime, one could argue that our man Jersey never became perfectly fluent in his adopted tongue. As I mentioned in the last episode, he was exceedingly comfortable when speaking and used his accent and endearing Slavicisms to further enhance his already exceptional charm. But his written words suffered from small errors, such as the omission of articles and the clustering of modifiers, the kind of tiny mistakes most non-native speakers are prone to make. Studying his various writings, it seems rather obvious those which he did with lots of editorial help and those which he composed himself with minimal assistance. At his best, in his novel Steps, he masters an eerily subtle and starkly minimalist style. At his worst, in, say, his novel Pinball, Jersey reads like an Eastern European caricature, like a Sasha from Everything's Illuminated, or a Borat without the humor. Here's a taste from his 1988 essay, Restoring a Polish-Jewish Soul. On getting ready to go to Poland. Packing my knapsack, a pack of memory chips loaded with
1: memories, and chipped by time, I take off for Poland. On arriving. By speaking Polish to anyone I choose, my touchdown in Poland touches the
0: deepest me. Upon meeting his adopted brother.
1: While in the intervening years, with the Iron Curtain intervening, Henrik and I seldom talked on the phone or wrote to one another. Now, arm in arm, tear in tear,
0: we bend in double sorrow over the double grave of our parents. To me, this essay reads not so much as bad writing, but as a non-native speaker who stumbles on silly word plays because, over 30 years after arriving in the U.S., he still doesn't fully grasp the rhythm and nuance of the English language. Let there be no debate. Jerzy Kaczynski was a brilliant thinker and storyteller. But this essay, which was published in the New York Times, by the way, is simply embarrassing. And it's by no means unique. The second half of his career was filled with this kind of garbage. When he began writing, Jerzy was well aware of his English language shortcomings. And if you'll remember from the last episode, he wrote his first books in Polish under a pseudonym and then had them translated without giving the translators credit. That could have been a way to proceed with The Painted Bird, but he recognized early on that finding someone to translate the novel without taking credit would be difficult. He could do it the normal way, which would be to write the book in Polish, then openly find a translator to render it into English. But back then, works in translation were valued much less than they are today. And furthermore, to do it properly, his book would first need to be successful in Polish before finding an audience in English. Kaczynski had defected from Poland, and even if he wasn't already persona non grata, the story wanted to tell, which was mm, a little less than flattering to the Polish people, and the fact that he planned to claim that it was all more or less true, which was mm, a flat-out lie, ruled out the possibility of publishing in Polish first so he placed an ad in the paper. Translator wanted. How do you convince someone to translate your novel on the down low? These answer is money, of course. Lots of it. Money can buy all sorts of silence. But there were several problems with that solution. First, though Kaczynski was married to a millionaire, he didn't quite have full access to her checking account. And second... What if, for instance, his book went on to be one of the all-time classics of Holocaust literature? What if he went on to win the National Book Award and become one of the most famous novelists in the U.S.? Buying silence was one thing, but guaranteeing it for years to come? Not so easy. Ghostwriters didn't start signing nondisclosure agreements until the 80s and 90s, when they became common for the actual writers of celebrity memoirs, and even began to find their way into fiction— when brand-name writers such as Tom Clancy, V.C. Andrews, and Jimmy Patterson used them to keep their novel factories churning. So without the possibility of an NDA, Jersey decided that a single translator simply could not be trusted. But what about a team of them? Jersey's rather ingenious solution was to employ a gaggle of different editors and translators. A tactic that he used for The Painted Bird and some of his subsequent novels as well was to get a prospective translator or editor to work on a quote sample chapter as a trial before committing to hire them. In one case, a guy named Steven Krauss did this trial chapter translation, but after he sent it to Jersey, he never heard back from him, nor received any money. Then, a few years later, he read The Painted Bird, and what do you know, he recognized much of his translation nearly word for word. Another one of his translator-editors, George Revy, said, quote, Kaczynski gave me an illiterate manuscript, part English, part Polish, and part Russian. I put it into prose, added details, and got $500. $500 for one of the most widely read novels about the Holocaust ever? Ouch. Kaczynski, of course, denied the accusations and would later argue that Krauss, Revi, and the many others who would eventually come forward and claim to have written parts of his books were just, quote, consultants, and that he always showed his manuscript to dozens of people before they were ready, as any writer would. However you want to label this writing process, the result was a sort of novel by committee. Jerzy Kaczynski was definitely his book's author, but he might not have been their writer. Years later, when Kaczynski's fame had grown to such an extent that his novels began to be put under a microscope, critics would point out inconsistencies in the voice of his work. From book to book, and arguably even within The Painted Bird itself, there are what seem like unintentional divergences in tone and style. Sure, most writers change it up every now and then, some like China Mayville or Kazuo Ishiguro can completely reinvent themselves and Others, like, say, Paul Auster or Salman Rushdie, let fame go to their head and believe that every piece of garbage that comes from their pen is publishable. Finally, you've got your drunks, like, say, my beloved Patricia Highsmith or Tennessee Williams, who drink themselves to such a stupor that their writing falls off a cliff. But when have we seen a great writer—and Jersey was definitely considered a great writer—seemingly lose some of their grasp on the language in which they've published all their books, Any effort to break out of the uncomplicated and unaffected voice he established in The Painted Bird, Steps, and Being There became an increasingly embarrassing flop. From the terribly awkward sentences in Passion Play to the truly unreadable ones in his last book, The Hermit of 69th Street, the question becomes, could Jersey just not write in any other style than that which he managed in his early work? Or is it that he just wasn't getting as much help? Or perhaps as much skilled help? Did the confidence he gained by winning the National Book Award and writing numerous bestsellers make him believe he no longer needed that help, that he really could write the novels himself? The Hermit of 69th Street, the only book he seems to have written more or less fully by himself, is an unmitigated disaster which never would have been published had its author not previously been a worldwide bestseller. Regardless of why the books got worse, there's one thing about them that's inarguable. They are all Jersey Kaczynski's. Each one might be the result of a ventriloquist act in which Jersey's voice is filtered through some nameless ghostwriter's pen, but the specific direction of the novel's wanderings into violence, sex, and depravity, along with their narration's unsettlingly distant perspective, could only come from one particularly brilliant And disturbed mind. And if Kaczynski was their sole author, that is, as long as he didn't plagiarize them, which, as we'll learn in a future episode, is a big if in the case of his novel being there, then what does it matter how and by whom the books were written? Perhaps he doesn't deserve full credit for them, but does their unorthodox composition diminish their value? Jersey sort of answered that question at a talk in Amsterdam less than a year before his death. When he mentions the village voice in this clip, he's referring to a 1982 article that outed him for using ghostwriters. We'll hear about that article in a future episode, but for now, listen to this.
3: Because I have a right to feel independent vis-a-vis my book. After all, am I to pretend that I'm not part of this book? My name is on it. I don't even care who wrote it, frankly. My name is on it, my picture is on it, and I always recall the nice lady who, when she read that thing in the Village Voice, stopped me on the red light in New York—not red light district, uh, red light—which didn't change. She looked up at me and she said, "Oh, Mr. Kosinski, I love your books, and I really don't care who wrote them." <laughs> and I said to myself, "You know, that's basically what's all about. I mean, after all, isn't it what I care about? I mean, do I really care? What do I?" Ca- I care about the book. I mean, are we going to check with Moses? Were there five books of Moses or seven books of Moses? How many editors were there? Proofreaders.
0: Santi, you still there? Yep. Question for you. How did you as a Carver fan feel when the original version of What We Talk About When We Talk About Love was released a few years ago? Mm,
1: well, definitely didn't read like a Carver book. You know, it was sort of disappointing.
0: Exactly, the minimalist style he's known for, and the style his MFA disciples have been aping for decades, is absent. The version we all read and tried to emulate had as much Gordon Lish in it as it did Raymond Carver. Yeah, well,
1: basically, the biggest influence on U.S. prose style in the last forty years didn't really create the very style he's known and revered for.
0: Yeah, it's not entirely his own. But then again, movies and music are also clearly art by committee. Yeah, sure, but they're recognized as such. I mean, there are some stories of authors who've
1: refused editors, Hemingway, of course. But we all know that these days, everything we're reading, unless maybe if it's self-published, has gone through many edits and therefore is not just work of one person. But there's a belief that the author did the writing, i.e. was responsible for the vision, the prose and the style. And that's why they're called an author and not a book director or something. And that's why, when we found out that Carver
0: didn't really create his own style, I felt disappointed, and even a bit betrayed. But at the end of the day, the Lish reveal didn't tarnish Carver's reputation. But why did J.T. Leroy's books, which were massive bestsellers and appreciated not only for their radical content, but for their literary quality as well, essentially disappear overnight, as soon as their author's true identity was revealed? In an era where we're constantly questioning whether or not we can divorce the work from the artist, and on a podcast which will raise that question about every single author we cover, Jersey's work brings up an adjacent issue. Can we divorce books not only from their author, but from our ideas of authorship? Setting aside questions about the Painted Bird's truthfulness, does the fact that it wasn't just written by the person named on the title page make it less of a novel? No fucking clue, I haven't read it. Well, my short answer is maybe a little less, but I still really liked it. Are you familiar with the infinite monkey theorem? Yeah, Borges, or how Melo would call him Borges, wrote about it, right? Yeah, it's in the essay The Total Library that became the basis for the library of Babel. Basically, the theory states that a monkey hitting random keys on a keyboard for an infinite amount of time will eventually write any text and eventually something quite good. So how would we feel about the Painted Bird or say Hamlet or Don Quixote if it were written by a monkey? In Borges' time, a question like this might've been little more than intellectual masturbation. But as of last year, this theoretical proposition just got frighteningly real when OpenAI and Elon Musk-backed tech lab built something called GPT-2, a computer that can write fiction—that's 1984-level creepy. Well, luckily for us and for James Patterson, OpenAI decided it was too dangerous to release, stating that it could be used to create quote deep fakes of text. The reality is that the text it creates is still somewhat awkward. Is it as bad as Kaczynski's later books? Well, maybe not that bad, but Elon's LitBot still have a long way to go before they're ready to write the next Savage Detectives. In any case. GPT-2 is alarming on a number of levels, and could really change the way we view authorship. We think of writing as a means by which one human communicates to another, and devotees of the novel as an art form tend to view it in sacred light. Mm, Sure, but there have been co-written novels. The Goncourt, the Strugatsky brothers. Yeah, Ilfin Petrov and the Wu Ming Luther Blissett collective, but the novel is historically a very individual, solitary form of art. There's a godlike quality to the novelist, particularly if they have the skill of, say, a Dostoevsky or Flaubert, to create an entire world, a world equipped with buildings, eggs, adulterers, smiles, resentments, birthday cake, all sorts of shit, a world into which we're invited to inhabit for a few hundred pages. In those worlds, we are monotheists, and I, for one, find something comforting in being able to occasionally turn to the back of the book and see the face of the person in control. But what if that face were a monkey's? Or robots. We've grown used to it in other art forms. Well, not the monkeys per se, but pop songs, superhero movies, and Netflix series are essentially aggregations of the sounds, images, and words that big data has decided we want. So I really think that what we talk about when we talk about divorcing art from the artist has changed. When the book was finished and Kaczynski started to shop it around, he assured his editors at Houghton Mifflin that it was all true. Okay, they said, then let's call it an autobiography. At that point, Kaczynski changed his tune. He knew it was too risky to pass off a bunch of fabrications as truth, especially when some of them could be fact-checked. So his approach was to deny that his book was autobiography while also refusing to deny that it was not. Kaczynski was so worried about the autobiographical claims in his book being proven false that he got his mom, Elzbieta—you remember her as the buxom pianist who only slept with her son in his novels—to both publicly and privately write letters for him, where she actually corroborated the completely bogus story that she'd lost him for six years during the Holocaust. In a 1982 interview, Kaczynski said, Thank goodness novelists die because their biographies die with them. He was making a point for judging novels solely on their merit, and not by what they might say about their authors' lives, or, conversely, what their authors' lives might say about them. So I have to jump in again, because this this interesting parallel to Mailer. Both
1: men made a name for themselves, writing books, which they presented as being very much based on their lives. Then, after a certain point, and only when it suited them, they both jumped on the you got to divorce the art from the artist bandwagon.
0: Yeah, after years of writing books filled with what he called a degree of treacherous behavior, but what he really should have called
1: a fucking shitload of treacherous behavior,
0: he was sick of people thinking he was a serial rapist and murderer. In the same interview, he recounted a question he supposedly received from a student during a lecture. Mr. Kaczynski, how many men have you actually killed, Sir? Uh, you mean in Europe or in this country? In this country! In this country, I cannot
1: tell you, because I would still be liable. Later in the interview, Kaczynski complained. People will not sit next to me at a dinner because they feel that clearly.
0: If these men write from life, what kind of life is this? I'm all for fiction writers being able to write whatever they want. But if you're going to claim that it's real, you shouldn't get mad at readers who can't decipher between fact and fiction and therefore assume you're a completely depraved psycho killer. The October 1965 first printing of The Painted Bird is, from a reader's perspective, fascinating, and from a bookseller's perspective, extremely rare and valuable. Prices on A Books, which by the way is now owned by Amazon, start at $100. There are two reasons for this. The first is that this edition contains a somewhat censored version of the text as Houghton-Mifflin forced Kaczynski to cut some of the most gruesome details, but by the time the book went to paperback, the expurgated text was restored and all further editions have retained full gory glory. Secondly, the first printing contained an epilogue which would be cut from all further printings. It stated that the boy grew up, rejected Soviet rule, and escaped to a free society, therefore suggesting a direct connection between the boy in the story and the man who wrote the book. It was essentially an I live to tell the tale claim, and though it would be cut from all further versions, it would cause problems for Jersey years later when the book's veracity began to come into question. Regardless of whether or not people believed his book, they loved it. Reviews were overwhelmingly positive, some glowing. One compared it to Anne Frank's diary, and Ellie Wiesel, writing for the New York Times, wrote it was a, quote, poignant first-person account that transcends confession. In an interview after Kaczynski's death, Wiesel said, I thought the book was fiction, and when Jersey told me it was autobiography, I tore up my review and wrote one a thousand times better. I started this episode drawing a parallel between Jersey Kaczynski and James Fry. But it now occurs to me that there's an equally compelling one between Jersey and Jack Henry Abbott, and how they dealt with the prospect of fame after publishing their first books. Both men had written unbelievably harrowing stories about their lives spent outside of the society that was now celebrating them, and both men carried with them deep emotional scars from the experiences they'd written about. But unlike Abbott, Jersey was highly socially adept. A master of camouflage and disguise, and instead of awkwardly hiding in the corner at parties and then senselessly killing someone at the peak moment of his writerly fame, Jersey was able to mask his childhood scars, and parlay his newfound success into even bigger and better things. But the damage was done, and no matter how good Jersey was at hiding the truth of his past, both the lies and the real trauma, it was still there, and would eventually come back to haunt him.
1: We'll get back to Jersey and his Icarus-like trajectory, but first I'm going to tell you a story about a man named Norman Mailer who also flew a bit too close to the sun, and the little party he threw back in November 1960, a party that put his wife in intensive care and his own ass in the Bellevue psych ward. That's next week on Penknife. Penknife is created, written and produced by Corey Eastwood and Santiago Lemoine. Ramona Stout is our editor and narrator. The logo and all things visual have been made by Nelly Cuellar Torres. The sound design, the music and all things audio are the work of Diego Sanchez of La Pianola Studio in Buenos Aires. Our website penknifepodcast.com was built by Flor Lopez. And a very special thanks to Mr. Rico Benelli for letting us turn his spare bedroom into a recording studio. Season 1 of Penknife took us two years to make. We're eager to get started on Season 2, and trust me, we've got some really good stories about writers behaving badly. But to do so, we need your help. If you're enjoying what you're hearing and want Season 2 to become a reality, please consider heading over to patreon.com penknife to support us. A cup of coffee or two a month would go a long way. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review Penknife on whatever app or platform you're using. And most importantly, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend about us. And thank you for listening.